Welcome back to the Modern Life Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Modern Life Pod. Visit our website, modernlifepodcast.com, and email us at modernlifepod at gmail.com. Joining me today to discuss E.M. Forster's A Room with a View is Carrie Ann Dunn. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Carrie Ann Dunn. Besides her interest in Forster's novels, Carrie's also an avid music lover. Check out her Instagram for her vinyl collection and Hamilton obsession, or to follow her journey through all of the annotated Jane Austens. Carrie has a wonderful sense of humor and was such a blast geeking out about a room with a view with her. So let's get started with our signature modern thought segment and then dive right in. This is not at all what we were led to expect. I thought we were going to see the Arno. The Signora distinctly wrote, South rooms with a view and close together instead of which is given as North rooms without a view and a long way apart. All righty. Welcome back, everyone. I have Carrie here with me. Carrie, how are you doing? I'm good. It's early, but I'm good. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. (laughs) So happy to have you. So let's get started with our modern thoughts. What's on your mind today? Well, I've been thinking about this. And there was something that was on Twitter recently about... I'm going to read the tweet. Is that okay? Oh, yes, please. Okay, it said, I read somewhere that people with anxiety love rewatching old TV shows and movies they have seen millions of times because there's no ounce of anxiety and wondering what the end result is. Now I know why I prefer to rewatch than start something new. And it's been retweeted and commented and liked like so many times. And I think it's so true right now during the pandemic. Yeah, I've seen like Northanger Abbey like five times already. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like rewatching something. Or even rereading something, rereading Austin for me right now has just been really soothing to my soul mm-hmm. and my heart. And I just think this is very prescient right now. And that was my modern thought. And I had someone else tell me that they love reading cozy mysteries because of the same thing. Mysteries always have a beginning, middle, and end. Everything is resolved by the end. You know who done it. And that that's comforting yeah. in our chaotic times. Yeah. That's so funny. I had a I had a similar thought to that one, though I haven't seen the tweet on our Dune episode, because I noticed on Bookstagram that people were going back to things like romance and cozies because they are predictable and because there's no, you know, is one of the characters going to die or is there not going to be a happy end or... And that, that is yeah. fascinating, the things that we gravitate to. In- well, my husband and I were talking about rewatching Parks and Recreation, and that would be a comfort too. Something we know we love. Yeah. We know that we love the characters. They <laughs> bring us joy and comfort. So, you know, it's definitely with the pandemic. Cling to what you can that soothes, yeah. I think. That's a, that's a good one. So mine is about a new word that I've started to hate. Um, it used oh. to be it used to be rustic, my most behated word. It's like <laughs> all cookbooks now are like rustic, and the pictures are a hot mess. And I'm like, no, you can't just have a hot mess and call it rustic. <laughs> but, um, my new f- least favorite word is divided or divisive, and I've been oh. hearing it a lot in the in the news. And it's just really yes. interesting how we how we use language around social and political issues. And this is not relegated to any one party. I've heard all kinds of people keep saying, oh, we're in such divided times right now. And that always makes me wonder, we've always been in divided times. I'm sure there was somebody like, I don't know, back in the 1800s who's like, oh, we're in such divided times right now (laughs) with the Civil War. And I, I don't know, it's also something that I feel like is used to diminish the issues at hand. It's like, oh, if we just, Correct. if we could just get together, then everything would be fixed. And I'm like, well, but I don't want to meet in the middle with somebody who's like, <laughs> of this, yeah, uh, you of know, some of these things, who's like a racist or who's doesn't believe in trans rights or doesn't, you know, it's like meeting right. in the middle isn't the answer there. And I feel like Mm-mm. that's also how so many people use the word politics as this throwaway word, like, oh, don't fight with people over politics and I'm like well to me politics are human rights and representative of my own values so they're not something like separate from me does that make sense yes well and also I I 
I hate when you see people in comment sections, which never read the comments, but you can't <laughs> help yourself sometimes. <laughs> but in comment sections, we'll say, oh, well, I really love your work, but why do you have to be political? Because you're supporting Black Lives Matter. I've seen that it's a lot. It's not a political statement. Like that's, it's just a, a, a fact. For some people that is just a political issue that they can just yes. dismiss. And I'm like, you don't realize that for some people, no. they can't take off their skin color and like go back to normal life. Right. And this is their online political life or whatever. It's exactly. just, yeah. So divided my, my new most hated word. I, I agree with you. I like that. But yeah, let's get started on A Room with a View. So this book came out in 1908 by E.M. Forster. And then we have the Merchant Ivory production from 1985. And then we'll also shortly dive into the 2007 film TV version. So just to thumbs give down. a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was special. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, a summary of the book, uh, Room with a View is Forster's third novel. It starts with young Lucy Honeychurch and her older impoverished cousin touring Italy. In Florence, they become acquainted with other English sightseers, including the Emersons, a father and son duo who are of lower class status when compared to the Honeychurches. Upon returning to England, Lucy becomes engaged to Pompil Cecil Weiss. She also meets the Emersons again, who have taken up residence in her neighborhood. Lucy slowly realizes that she is not in love with Cecil, who represents upper-class convention and snobbishness, and instead began falling for George Emerson back in Florence. A Room with a View is a romantic tale, but also a commentary on English class structures and the English sense of superiority when they travel abroad. Forster highlights their touristy behavior in humorous ways while also weaving a story full of feeling with a wonderful cast of characters. Fifty years later, Forster added a grim appendix to the story reflecting the horrific events of two world wars and how they impacted Lucy's family. So, Carrie, this is one of your favorite films. The I... 1985 version. Yes, uh, just to clarify. <laughs> so I watched that one a while ago and I remember really liking it, but I made 2020 the year where I would read all of Forster's novels, but for you, mm -hmm. this was a reread. So do you remember when you first encountered the book or the film or which you gravitated to first? I, I encountered the film first. I think I was in ninth grade. I discovered I really liked period drama, like period pieces. And I found A Room with the View, I think just at the video store and I rented it and I fell in love with it. And I've been watching it all the time ever since it's been one of my comfort movies and it's like one of my all-time favorites and I was just obsessed with Helena Bonham Carter and her hair and oh my gosh <laughs> everything about her character she's so elfin and interesting and so unlike me and then I got really into Britain and British everything and I became kind of this crazy Anglophile <laughs> so I definitely saw the movie first and just thought it was so funny and beautiful. Like it's just so beautifully shot and the scenery and the settings and the costumes and even the interiors in the houses. Like it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it, I mean, Merchant Ivory, they are the masters of that genre. I miss, I miss those them. movies, I'm, yeah. I miss, yeah. yeah, I'm so sad. I mean, I know that James Ivory is still doing things, in the night in his 90s because he won for um what was that movie that just came out call me by call me by your name yes and he i think he was the oldest one to win in that category ever wow yeah he's That's still really cool. doing stuff out there <laughs> so i definitely read the book after seeing the movie and rereading it just now I, it's been a long time since i've read it but it's still just so it's delightful i find it lovable even though it's about class distinctions, I just love every single character. I, I love all the characters. They're all so lovable and huggable to me. Even Cecil with his pompousness and his <laughs> snobbishness yeah. and his dismissiveness of women, of Lucy. But I like when she um, finally spurns him and you know tells him she's not going to marry him. He changes a little bit. Yeah. I just love I love all of them. I also really love the chapter titles. Yeah. Although they're so funny. And then 
But then there'll be one that's just like fifth chapter. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and then the Fourth other ones chapter. will be like really long, like so and so and so and so and so and so. Like they're all going on a carriage drive. Italians drive them. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know, I, and I haven't seen that in any of his other books. So I just thought that was really special, and it yeah, it's it is so lovable because when you think of other books that are maybe about these class things or you know like Howard's End is more sharp and less yes, not as lovable yeah yeah and I, I think a room with a view is a straight-up comedy yeah you know <laughs> it, it's just it's just funny and the language is so sharp and hilarious and all the different characters and they're all their little foibles i love are we talking about the film more than the the book right oh, now, but you, in the film either. when when George Emerson when they're on the picnic and he climbs up in the tree and he's shouting as his father says his creed <laughs> and he falls out like the tree branch breaks and he falls out. It's just hilarious. Oh man, that is a good but, scene. <laughs> but so subtle. I, I think that like I've made my husband watch the film and it's not as funny to him, whereas I am laughing hysterically. <laughs> So I think it depends on your sense of humor, for sure. Like, some people are just going to see it as, like, a boring period piece, whereas I just see all the subtle humor and can't help but laugh. There's a one scene where Cecil is, they're looking out at him, and he has a teacup outside, oh and then there's a God. bee buzzing around him, and he's, like, flinging his arms everywhere. Probably my get away favorite scene, because, like, <laughs> you can hear the teacup rattling, too, <laughs> as he's trying. It's, oh, God, it's just Daniel Day-Lewis has, like, perfect control of his body. Let's talk about Daniel Day-Lewis in this role. Yes. Because I feel, <laughs> when you think of Daniel Day-Lewis, you do not think of comic relief. That's you true. don't think of comedy at all. You think of Bill the Butcher or you think of Daniel Plainview. You think of these hard, terrible characters and just angry faces. But then <laughs> if you ever you go back and watch 1985, A Room with a View, and there's Daniel Day-Lewis, almost unrecognizable in his, you know, British suits. The and high his collars. Little mustache and yeah, his the, yeah. <laughs> his pince-nez on his nose. <laughs> And he's so funny. And also just the voice he does. Even like the snobbish, super over-enunciated British posh voice. It's so not the Daniel Day-Lewis that we're used to. And I think it's fantastic. Well, even his uh, his entrance, when he brushes away the curtain and he, his hand movements are so on point. <laughs> yes. And he just starts with yes. this like... Italian, you know, he's constantly yeah. like throwing Italian sayings into a speech and he never ever loses that control of his body. I could just watch him in that role all day. Just even the way he walks down the street. It's just mm-hmm. uh, it's such with his pain. Oh, yes. It's so yes. perfect. It's perfect and I mean it it shows in that early time 1985 that he really is a genius actor and he really does embody a character. <laughs> Uh, he goes on to win, you know, how many Oscars for it right. later. But even then, in this early role, he disappears into it. And he's so good. And I really wish I could find out how he was on set. Because <laughs> you know it's he's notorious for, like, staying in character at all times. And I wonder if he was like that even then, or if that came later. Because I think it would be hilarious to just be <laughs> hanging out with Cecil Weiss <laughs> all, like, 24 hours a day on the set there's a there's a scene in there that's one of my favorite Cecil scenes because it's such a slight detail and it's him and Lucy and they're walking down the street and Mm -hmm. etiquette back in the day demanded that the woman walk on the side of the houses and the man walks on the side of the cars to protect the women yes and he changes sides with Lucy in the street it's such a subtle slight thing but it perfectly illustrates how this character is very chivalrous and does all the right things, but there's no feeling behind it. Correct. He's only doing it because it's proper. But yes, he's, he kind of moves her aside when a car is, is passing. Yeah. yeah it, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've seen this movie a million times. <laughs> so I know every little moment. 
The breakup scene, as you've already mentioned, who had the idea of him not having his shoes on and carrying his shoes yeah. around in that scene? Why it, doesn't he have his shoes on? It, I feel like that is definitely Daniel Day-Lewis and not the director. <laughs> it just feels like a character quirk that he would have inserted because it's definitely not in the book either, but it's so funny with him holding his shoes <laughs> <laughs> and she breaks up with him because he won't play tennis with Freddie, which was just the last straw. She tells him. <laughs> And then she leaves him and goes upstairs after saying, you know, we're off. And he sits down and he puts his shoes on. I watched an interview with Julian Sands, who plays George Emerson. And he said that was his favorite scene because it resolves Cecil by investing the character with humanity. And it allows the film to breathe by taking the time on these smaller scenes. And he's like, I think a, a modern movie would have just cut away. But we got to be there in that moment with yes. him tying his shoes it's such yes. a stroke of genius to me, the, the shoe thing. And it is, it does take time and gives you a breather because they really do focus on him. He sits down on the stairs, he puts on one shoe, he starts to lace it. And it's just focusing on him kind of sitting in the moment of, I'm no longer engaged mm -hmm. to this wonderful girl who now seems more wonderful mm -hmm. than even when I proposed to her. So yeah. he has to sit with what his great loss because it really is a loss. And now he knows it, which you can see in the sadness in the next scene when he's leaving and Mr. Beeb comes across him and Freddie as they're leaving. And he doesn't say that he's not coming back to Mr. Beeb, mm -hmm. but it's in his voice. It's so sad. I feel bad for Cecil. And you shouldn't. Like, he's pompous and ridiculous, and he didn't value Lucy when he had her. But Daniel Day-Lewis put so much humanity in him that you do feel bad for yeah. him at the end. Yeah, but I also wonder, so Mr. Beeb is coded as gay in the book because they keep saying, oh, he's a confirmed bachelor and so on. And then Mr. Beeb makes a comment about Cecil, like something like, oh, he's just like me. And we know mm. Forster was a, the author was a gay man. And Mr. Beeb being homosexual, I didn't really see that in the movie, but I could see from Daniel Day-Lewis's acting that they did keep that in mind. I think of Mr. Beeb. I've never really thought of him as being homosexual, but that makes sense. None of the I movies. Mean, he's not, no, yeah. He's not of the kind of. He's not of the kind of clergy that can't get married, right? Like he could if he wanted to. Mm -hmm. But I think that Cecil, you could definitely get a taste of that. Maybe he's trying to marry Lucy or any woman. Yeah. As an object, he he values her as an object in his life and because he's expected to marry not necessarily because it's yes, his yeah. inclination yeah and the in the new one in the 2007 one I, they actually lean into that a little bit more and make it more explicit that cecil is a is like a gay man but yeah that movie it's it's a very forgettable movie <laughs> it wasn't good i just remember hating george the actor who played him just did not play it right he's not attractive he, yeah he's terrible I, I i i didn't care for him at all i mean there was and the... that's really the only impression i i can remember from that film because i watched it once when it came out so was that 13 years ago yeah and i i didn't i i just had a very visceral <laughs> bad reaction to it and i'm not averse to updates of the new howard zen miniseries with oh, um, Matthew so McFadyen and yeah. Helly Atwell. I love it. I think it's gorgeous. There was a scene in there where George, this is right after she faints, and they see the Italian being stabbed in the, in the square. Mm -hmm. And George says, best not look to her. And then he gives her this mischievous smile. And I'm like, what, mm. what's, what's funny right now? You just saw a murder being committed? Mm. Like, what? So many acting choices from, from like, man who played George that I just thought were I mean that scene where they meet at the pension and he's half naked mm -hmm. he just got out of the bathroom and I'm like whoa that's like so over the top and then he goes yeah, I love you and I know you love me too and no matter where you go I'll find you and I'm like this is a little scary honestly <laughs> it's like is that a threat was that was that written by Andrew Davies? Is that why I hate it so much? I love Andrew Davies. He's written so many good things. I mean, you like <laughs> Northanger Abbey. 
Did he write that one? Yeah, too? he wrote that one. Wrote yeah. This one? this this one is a this one is a I don't know what he was thinking with this one. I just not good. I just think Andrew Davies sometimes tries to modernize things that don't need to be modernized. Interesting. He tries to add a little sex or a little this or that that is just not needed because he thinks it'll appeal to a modern audience more. And that's that's where I diverge with Andrew Davies. Yeah, there was this really (laughs) sensationalist piece of writing at the end where there was like a suicide scare because George is lying in that pond and she runs oh, in there and she's like, no, and then he's just, he's oh, just lying geez. in the water, but he's not dead. And I'm like, what a strange thing to think of to put in this movie. Like I've some... blocked all that out. <laughs> all I can see is him yelling at her when she tries to kick him out of the house after the second kiss. All I can see is him yelling at her, and I I hated him. And you're not supposed to hate George. You're supposed to want her to get with George. (laughs) Just watch the 1985 version and pretend the 2007 doesn't exist. Well, what's interesting is the 1985 had a really low budget, even for its time. $3 million, even in the 80s, was, um, was really low. And I thought I was being too hard on this TV version, but I'm like, well, it doesn't probably, it doesn't have a big budget either, but why... Why does it look so ugly? Like every scene was mm. dark as if there was no lighting guy there. Like half the scenes were in complete shadow. I always thought that the Merchant Ivory version is very close to the book. And it is. But there are some differences that struck me that I wondered if it just had to do with filming. For example, in the book, the field where George and Lucy have their first clandestine kiss <laughs> that Charlotte comes upon in the book, it's violets. They're in a field of violets and they talk about the beauty and how it's so beautiful that of course he had to kiss her. And Hmm. in the movie, there are no violets. It's like a field of barley with poppies, like dots of red poppy Mm -hmm. fields. And I just wondered, maybe they're not violets in Italy (laughs) when they're filming. Yeah. They actually had a lot of anxiety over that. Because they only had a few days in Italy and they were so tight and they kept running around like, we cannot find these flowers. We can't ship them in. It's too expensive. And finally they were like, oh my God, let's just film it with the, with the, yeah, with the poppies. It. And I'm like, it, I mean, that's imprinted on your brain. That scene is like. Yeah, it's the violets. <laughs> but it's still imprinted even in the film version. Oh yeah, that's when what I, I read it, yeah. When I read it again in the book, I was like, oh, it's not, it's not the way it is in the film. And I, but and that's what I felt. I felt that it had to have been constraints of filming. Mm-hmm. But I also wondered if Ian e. Forrester just said there were violets, but maybe there are never violets yeah. in Italy. That's in that area. Point. Like, does he really know that there would be a field of violets, or if he's just romanticizing it? Yeah, that's which is true. something we can never know. That's but true. that was a little subtle difference. Same with the the cornflowers that the Emersons bring to the Miss Allens. In the film, they they fill their room with cornflowers, but in the book, it's violets again. So I think Forrester just had a thing for violets. Was that scene in the book? I don't remember that. That they actually go in their room and leave the flowers there? It might not be in the room, but they they bring them flowers. Yeah, because I, I wrote that down as a difference I really, really liked in the movie. Because I think going right into their rooms would have been a little improper. But in the movie, I loved how it showed that the Emersons, it it just illustrated their character perfectly, that they're not as concerned with convention and they just get this great idea of like, oh, I I can give somebody joy. And then we get that scene of them decorating the whole room in the the flowers. And I'm like, I, I thought that was a brilliant adaptation choice to make. I love old Mr. Emerson so much. And Denholm Elliott in the film is delightful. He's just so sweet and so he's trying so hard and he just wants to do right by his son. And he has taught his son to be a free thinker and to throw off conventions. But then he sees that it backfires a little bit. He thinks that it's backfiring and he's so sad about Mm. it. And that I love him in that final scene, but I love him in every scene. In the opening scene where he's like, we have a view. <laughs> you can just take our view. 
and he's stabbing when, his 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 heart with his fork and it's so yes. tactless and so improper but he's so passionate with like i can do a service for somebody else it's yeah, why brilliant. Why shouldn't you have it? Yeah. Why shouldn't you have it? And when he tells Mrs. Poole not to drink lemonade because <laughs> it's bad for her stomach. <laughs> it's all acidity. <laughs> and everyone is so mortified by him. But again, he's just trying to be helpful. <laughs> There's all these little scenes um, that I don't think I would have noticed on my first viewing. But even him helping the servants out carrying the picnic baskets to the to mm -hmm. the outing yes it's uh, yes it's, he grabs it out of the italian's uh, hand and he's brilliant. carrying it he doesn't think that the girl should be thrown out of the carriage the girl that's being kissed by the driver yeah his sister she's my sister <laughs> as they're making out and oh how gorgeous is that girl oh yeah I, my 14 my 14 year old me was like oh my god she's a goddess <laughs> and her hair her hair is that long gorgeous blonde hair and then she has this beautiful like flower braid in the back i think it's and, a wig yeah, it I'm still sure looks it is, good <laughs> uh, it just it hit all my romantic ideals yeah. when i was 14 and 15 i just thought she was amazing i know that forster put that in there to it's like there's this choice between convention and sensuality. And the scene mm -hmm. with the driver is like, should we let them stay and make out or should we should we kick her out? And I know what he's doing, but honestly, if I was in that carriage and I had hired a driver, I'd be like, dude, what are you doing? You're at work. Yes, <laughs> you're at work. You're not really, this is not an excuse for you to drive your girl around. <laughs> Especially when you have clergymen with That's their true. collars you know, in, yeah. your, in your carriage. They're going to realize it's not your sister another scene but i love sorry go mr ahead. emerson defends them he does defend and them. he defends them in the best way of like do we hate it hate joy in in other people that if we see it we reject it mm. yeah mr emerson i just love him so much and even in santa croce where he's trying to take her around and oh, so be the tour guide. <laughs> yeah i just think he's the best and that final scene which another comparison from the book to the film. It seems that Merchant Ivory made Charlotte Bartlett more of an active character in the film than she is in the book. Because the final scene, and I, when I say the final scene, I mean the one in Mr. Beeb's rectory when um, mm -hmm. Mr. Emerson's waiting while the movers take all his stuff out of his house and Charlotte's waiting. In the book, Charlotte is not seen talking to Mr. Emerson. And the lines that Charlotte has in the film are Lucy's lines in the book. Like the whole conversation yes. mm -hmm. between Charlotte and then Lucy and Mr. Emerson is all Lucy's in the book. It was an interesting choice. I think really just give Maggie Smith something more to do because <laughs> she's so wonderful. <laughs> so you like that change? You thought it was a good choice? I'm, I I understand it. I don't know if I like the change because... I think Lucy needs to have that conversation with Mr. Emerson. It's It makes more sense that it's all Lucy. And then at the end of the book, her and George discuss that Charlotte may have helped them more than they thought at the time. Because Charlotte knew that Mr. Emerson was there and still sent Lucy in to talk to him, knowing that he would probably talk her into staying and being with George. But in the movie, that's definitely what she does. Mm -hmm. She really does it. She's very active. I had for I'd forgotten a lot of the movie when I read the book a few months ago, and I hated Cousin Charlotte because she is so <laughs> obnoxious, and Forster does that on purpose. And then he does that final twist at the very end of the at the book, where he's like, yes. "Actually, she's a master manipulator, and she's the reason that these two got together." And I'm like, "Oh my god, he got me!" Like I thought it was so brilliant, <laughs> but I don't right. know how to show all that in in a movie. So I thought Correct. the adaptation choices were actually really smart. She's so cheeky, and you see that on screen where she locks Lucy in with Mr. Emerson, and she's like. Mm -hmm. Your dear mother most kindly offered to fetch me in her carriage and have not been brought up to keep anyone waiting, least of all a yes. kind hostess. And she shuts the door and I'm like, it's so brilliant. <laughs> I love that scene. Well, and, and also another change from the book to the film is in the beginning with Charlotte, the walk that she takes with Miss Lavish, where there's the 
the Italian scent. There's an Italian smell. Smell it. Smell that smell. And she covers her mouth with a handkerchief. <laughs> in the book, that's Lucy. Mm-hmm. Lucy's walking with Miss Lavish. Mm-hmm. But they needed in the film to establish that they form a friendship in order for her to have told mm-hmm. Eleanor Lavish the secret about the clandestine kiss so that she can put it in her book. So it works in the film more to show that agree, they yeah. have that intimacy mm-hmm. by having her go on the walk with Miss Lavish rather than Lucy. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I hadn't even thought about that. Too. But now that you bring it up, you're like, oh, yeah, you do need you do kind of need that to. Yeah. And, and that was really missing in the 2007 version, too with their friendship just rang so false and the acting was so shrill and it was just, there was no theme and it was all over the place. I like when Mrs. Honeychurch points out how similar Lucy is to Charlotte. Mm. And Lucy is mortified that she would think that she's like Charlotte Bartlett, but they are very similar in that passive aggressiveness. (laughs) That's true. And, And Charlotte, also the name, it means small. And it's like this, it? yeah, this, this oh, character yeah. who's like very, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of autonomy and has to rely on others mm-hmm. because she's so impoverished. Yeah. And I actually really love that. It's another commentary on class that I think Forster has done really successfully with that character of like, where are you on the social ladder and what can you do and can't you do? And, she, you know, she's not married. So what does that mean? Mm-hmm. But she had romance, but I don't know what happened to it. You almost want a spin-off. It. Yeah, it's like what happens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's her what's her prequel? What's her prequel story? And, mm. and you pointed out that in the Merchant Ivory one, they talk about where Angels Fear to Tread, which was Forster's first novel, I believe. Correct. And I never I, noticed that. I I think it was. I noticed it years ago. I oh. think finally after I had read Where Angels Fear to Tread. The next time I watched A Room with a View, I I caught the word Monteriano, which is the town that mm-hmm. the character and where Angel Sphere Tread goes and stays. So, yeah, when, when Charlotte Bartlett and Miss Lavish are sitting on the hillside and they send Lucy away because they want to gossip. Mm-hmm. They have some gossip. They want to <laughs> share. They don't want to influence this young girl. And they tell her to go look for the boys. They have a line. Charlotte says, and did she really marry this Italian? And Lavish says... In the church at Monteriano, a youth 10 years younger than yeah, herself. Yeah, yeah, even the age is And the same. Charlotte clicks her tongue and says, oh, Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, but that is totally where angels fear to tread, which I thought was a very clever little inside wink to Forster. And now, and as soon as you mentioned it, you like sent me a message. Then I also realized mm-hmm. upon my rewatch that when when Charlotte Bartlett is in the train going towards Windy Corners, she gets something in her eye. And that's something that mm-hmm. happens twice in where angels fear to tread to where a character keeps getting something in her eye on a train ride. <laughs> is it? Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, I wouldn't so have noticed it. I read that book. I wouldn't have got caught that at all. Yeah. She's so funny, Charlotte. <laughs> and then when she's sitting in the hired carriage and George is on the bike behind her, <laughs> And she's just mortified that he's there and he just, uh, he tips his hat at her. She's so trying funny. not to look at him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I also love when she's falling into the rose bushes <laughs> when they're doing the gardening. Oh <laughs> yes. Poor. Oh, can we talk about Lucy's mother as well? Please. Yes. Because she is so funny too. And I love her. And my favorite is when Mr. Beeb comes and, Lucy and Cecil have just gotten engaged and he proclaims that they, you know, hopefully they will always be in love and have a great life and blah, blah, blah. And then he said, and now I would like my tea. (laughs) And Mrs. Honeychurch says, how dare you be so serious? And I think that just shows her character so much because she's not a prim and proper lady completely. She's, she's very comical like her kids are. They're just a big gang of goofiness yeah. and fun and love, Yeah, which is why I love the Honey Churches so much. And I love how she brings Charlotte. And then when Charlotte has that whole scene where she wants to pay for the cab, but she doesn't have the exact change. <laughs> and when they finally walk inside and she just laughs and she says, poor Charlotte. <laughs> and she's just giggling. 
Oh, that hilarious. is a great scene. Yeah. About about the honey churches, I also love when Mr. Beeb and Cecil are discussing Freddie and Mr. Beeb goes, Oh, Freddie is horrible, such an unpromising youth. It's so funny. So unlike his sister. <laughs> oh man. What do we think about how Mr. Beeb it does not approve of Lucy's choice in Cecil. In the book, he's like, I've decided to stay a bachelor. So he looks for people who are like him. Yes, do he that. wants her to stay a bachelor. But it's also at the same time, like, well, a woman staying single is not the same as a man staying single. Like, what is she going to do? Correct. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. The other change I, I feel that you, or it's not a change as much as I just don't think you get it in the film as well as it's blatantly stated in the book is when Lucy and George get together in the end, everyone's pissed. Yeah. They're all angry about it. Yeah. Her mom's angry. Mr. Beeb is really angry. He's like not into it. But in the film, it's just kind of a little throwaway comment about Freddie thinks he's being dignified. Everyone knew we were going away in the spring. But in the book, you know that everyone is really, really mad at them. And I think... It was a good choice for the film because you don't want to end on like a note like that where it seems mm -hmm. that they've done wrong. You want it to be a happy ending. So I'm okay with that change. I agree. It's more but about it the romance me. and less about the social implications of somebody like Lucy marrying a, a Clark. Yeah, a railway Clark. Yeah. I wanted to talk oh. about the, the names themselves because I think Lucy Honeychurch is one of the greatest names for a heroine ever. <laughs> And if we go by, her name's actually Lucia, which is interesting. I, I wasn't sure about that. If Eleanor was just calling her that because they were in Italy or if her name is actually... No, because I think, pretty sure it's in the book, but now I'm second guessing myself. But uh, Charlotte calls her that once they're back home in, in England. She calls uh, okay. her Lucia. Mm. I think it's, she uses the full name when she's in empathy with her. Gotcha. Uh, about George being there. So yeah, I think Lucy is just short for Lucia, which is interesting for the Italianness. That name means light, same as Eleanor. Eleanor is a version of, of Helen, which also means light. And they're these kind of very bright characters. And Eleanor Lavish in Lucy Honeychurch. And then interestingly enough, Cecil actually means blind. I, I oh, love that. Yeah, I was like, that cannot be a coincidence, like Forster's way too smart for that <laughs> and then george actually means farmer or soil and i think that also is really oh. fitting because they're, he's so down to yeah. earth and even in the movie yes. there's a line where the emersons say they want to live where they can smell the earth when they're talking to cecil mm. at the museum the line too in the book where lucy says she disliked confidences for they might lead to self-knowledge and to that king of terrors light Oh. Ever since that last evening at Florence, she had deemed it unwise to reveal her soul. That's so smart. I thought I forgot about that. Yeah, you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> now, with you, I thought for sure you'd want to talk about costumes. You know what I really love is the scene when the mom and the daughter are having that confidence in the room. And she's helping her yes, dress. and they're dressing. And mm -hmm. the, you see all the, you know, those really pigeon-chested undergarments that they've worn at Edwardian times. And I, I don't know, it's yeah. just this beautiful, intimate moment. And I think the costumes really contribute to that in that scene. And they're dressing for dinner. Yeah. Like, they have to, that whole having to change, like, from whatever you were wearing during the day, now you have to put something completely else on for dinner. Yeah. You have to have an hour transition in between the daytime and the evening so you can dress differently and even Cecil in the scene where she rejects him he's in a tux he's in a tuxedo yeah, yeah. <laughs> for what they had dinner <laughs> he's in a tuxedo but one of my favorite costumes in the whole film is Freddie's striped jacket oh my god oh so good <laughs> it's so good and he wears it more than once so, and it might be like a, maybe it's a school jacket, like something he wears yeah. at school. He wears it with a boater hat too, I think. It's just yes. such a perfect outfit. It's so Edwardian. It's so perfect. It's beautiful. I love it. I also really loved how um, the tourists, um, especially in that scene that we already talked about in Santa Croce, where there's that whole group of tourists and they're all wearing beige. Like these, yes. all the English are always wearing beige and there's a little less colorful the santa croce scene when she's walking by herself right before she witnesses the murder 
there's a, sh- a pull-out shot, which in 1985, I don't know how they did it in Italy, but it had to have been a dolly shot. They pull away and you see everyone, like they had so many extras. Yeah. All in period costume, all walking around this square in Italy. And all I could think was, how did they get so many period costumes and everyone walking perfectly? And it's just so well done, you know, in a time before CGI, you know, those were all real people in this yeah. far away shot in this scene. That reminds me it's of a beautiful. story about um, Ismail stopping the the traffic on the river so they could get that one shot of the Arno or whatever. And he mm-hmm. like would stop people from going down the river in their boats. And it wasn't, they don't even know if it was legal, but he's like, we have to get this one shot, you know? <laughs> of like the, of the photographs being thrown yeah, in. Yeah, I think it was, um, yeah, one of the shots in the Arno. And then when you see Lucy and George in it, and they're kind of leaning on that wall if the camera yes. would just go a little bit of, up, you would see like the traffic and the cars on the street <laughs> behind them. I <laughs> love that little detail. Movie that magic. Detail. <laughs> yeah, movie magic. They were such masters of telling these period stories. It's so immersive. It really takes you to the time. And it's just so impressive. I really miss Merchant Ivory films. And, and what's interesting too is that their screenwriter Ruth, I, I forget her name. They were this trio, and they would she would be there for the entire movie. And movie making mm-hmm. nowadays is so segmented, where departments don't even interact that much. And I feel like that was part of their magic was that the the three of them worked so closely together to make something. Yes, they were a true collaborative mm-hmm. team. I I just think their type of movie making just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and it's kind of depressing. Yeah. Uh, what do we think about the Naked Boy scene? So that scene, and actually when I rented the movie, the 2007 one was all edited and like blurred out. <laughs> but then oh, for no. the 85 one, I actually rented the DVD. You know, there's nothing hidden. You see these three mm-hmm. boys like, and I love that European kind of not shying away from the body. My only yes. problem with that scene is how, how long it is because I think it's just them clowning around for what feels like five minutes and at some point I kind of lose like, okay, what are we still doing here? <laughs> yes, it is very gratuitous. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very interesting when you think of Merch Diary and, you know, they just wanted to show these naked men for a little yep. while. <laughs> but it's so unconventional to not be a naked woman. I have the Criterion Blu-ray, but I didn't want to dig it out. And it's free on Cinemax right now, mm. like I, so I can watch it free. So I just watch it. And, you know, they have the um, disclaimers in the beginning, adult language mm-hmm. and nudity. And when I saw the nudity for a second, I was like, what nudity? Because you only think of female nudity when you see that. That's true. To me, it, it, it's unfortunate in our misogynistic society mm-hmm. that when I see the word the warning for nudity. I think of female nudity and I was like, there's no nudity in this movie. And then I'm like, oh wait, there is, there's a whole long scene where men <laughs> are swimming naked and then they run around the pond so with their penises flapping in the wind. You know, it's hilarious <laughs> to think that that went out of my head because it's not female nudity. Yeah. But what I thought was really interesting is it's almost exactly the book. That scene in the book. That's true. It's exact. Down to them throwing their clothes around. Mm-hmm. and But there's one line in the book that is not in the film. And I think it's a travesty. And it's when Freddie says, I've swallowed a polywog. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> it always makes me giggle in the book when he says, oh my goodness, I've swallowed a polywog. And it's not in the film. And I'm like, oh, you missed it. You missed it, <laughs> Merch Diary. You should have put that line in because it's so funny. <laughs> I also love how they made the choice to dress the three approaching characters in all white. You know, Cecil and, and the two yes. ladies. They're, they're... they're about to have their innocence broken. Right. And then <laughs> Cecil trying to protect them. And he's like this way. Yes. And he's just beating ferns with his like walking cane. <laughs> oh, God, it's so funny. <laughs> It's so funny. And then Lucy's giggle. Yes. Lena Bonham Carter's giggle at the naked boys. So precious. Is so funny and adorable. 
And the mom, too. <laughs> when the mom says, oh, look. No, don't look. <laughs> uh, it, it's a comedy. Everyone, go watch A Room with a View right now, the 1985 version, because it's so funny. It's also interesting how in that scene, she's more concerned with Freddie cashing cold than him being improper. It's, it's this little yeah. detail about the mom that's like... It's okay. They're just boys being boys you know, bathing in the pond, but why don't you just have a proper bath at home? <laughs> so funny. But I love that Mr. Beeb kind of lets go too. But then when you add that layer of if he's a homosexual, is he really enjoying this running around with the naked boys? Yeah. Go. Something to think about. <laughs> but the the 2007 one did put that in there. Because as the, as the other two boys oh, are undressing, he's like looking at them and, and checking them out and I Boo. I didn't mind it, but the movie commits so many other so many other mistakes. I think one of them is the piano scenes in that movie were just bananas. Like the fingers didn't correspond at all to oh. the to the music. Whereas you can tell, you know that Helena's actually playing that piano. Yeah, she had to take uh, lessons in between shots and just keep oh. playing the same bars over and over for whatever song they were doing. And that's why I it just... feels so authentic. It is authentic. And I always assumed that Helena was probably just raised to play piano. She comes from, she, she, I think her family's kind of well off. So now you've, you've ruined the magic. Whereas I find out she had to practice and practice and practice. I'm just kidding. It's okay. <laughs> they did say, however, that she was very skilled at it. And they were like, oh, you should keep at this because it's not as hard for you as it is for some other people. Oh, interesting. She was a natural. And it's also funny that they put so much emphasis in the 2007 one of her playing the piano when they obviously didn't do any training and didn't have any time to do that. And I'm like, but in that case, why don't you just not show it? I'm, I'm thinking here of like the new Far From the Matting crowd. I don't know if you've seen it, but they just they just completely leave out, leave out that Farmer Oak plays the flute. And even when Bathsheba is playing the piano, they don't show her hands or anything. And I'm like, yeah, if you don't have the time to train people, just leave it out it's better than whatever they did in the room with a view movie <laughs> oh so bad there's also a really long scene of lucy looking at statues in italy and it cuts back to her face and it cuts back to the statues and it's like it cuts back 15 times and i just wanted oh, to shake the director and be like it's not it's not actually about the tourism it's about how the english behave when they're tourists like i want to just be like no that's not the point <laughs> about having the travel guidebooks and throwing them away have you looked up what was written in those books they were super no. judgy they would just be are like, they, well, you can go visit, yeah, they, like you can go visit Italy or Germany, but you know, the people there are trash and savages and, but if you want to go, here's sure where to go. stay at these English yeah, places. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So it's, oh, they were harsh, but they were really popular and everybody bought them. <laughs> that's interesting. I also wanted to bring up consent in the book for that second yeah. kiss. Because, yes, yeah. let's go there. Because he kisses her and she does say no in the book. But in the movie, in both versions, they make it very consensual and she reciprocates. And that was another choice that I thought was was a good one. Because it is a little weird in the book and he does kind of just kiss her without asking her the, the second time. And yes. I think she actually also, she calls him out for it. They have that conversation afterwards where... He's like, oh, Cecil doesn't let you think for yourself and he doesn't want you to have your own thoughts. And she kind of says, well, it looks like you've caught the habit because you're not, you know, you're not asking me what I want to do either. Yes. He's so sad when she points that out and he's and he realizes, oh, my gosh, you're right. Exactly. And I think that's the difference also between why we like him as a hero, because he says, I'm just going to quote it from the book. Yes, I have, yes. and sank down as if suddenly weary. I'm the same kind of brute at bottom. This desire to govern a woman, it lies very deep, and men and women must fight it together before they shall enter the garden. But I do love you, surely in a better way than he does. Yes, really in a better way. I want you to have your own thoughts, even when I hold you in my arms. And I just thought that was such a beautiful feminist thing to say in the end. And again, I love George. And I love that Mr. Emerson has instilled this in him. Yes. Mm -hmm. With having no mother, you know. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. 
you know, he has no mother to instill this in him, but even Mr. Emerson is able to, to put this into him. And I, I just, I love it so much. And yes, he, he was caught up in the passion and, and he had to take the moment that he had to kiss her, you know, when Mr. Vice was not quite there, but he was right there. He just had to make her see, and he didn't know any other way to do it. Uh, in the film, she kisses him back. She's mm-hmm. caught off guard, and sh- he doesn't ask, but she's into it until yeah. she realizes, wait, and pushes him off. But then there is the scene where Cecil kisses her, and he asks. He is very specifically says, I've never kissed you before now. Might I do it now? It's an interesting dichotomy of the passionate George and the very proper mm-hmm. Cecil Vice, mm-hmm. who has never kissed her, yet they're engaged. So where is the passion there? Even after they got engaged, he hasn't kissed her? That scene is also brilliant. We didn't talk about it before, but because there's so many obstacles to that kiss. You know, there's her veil, and then there's her his veil. cane, and then there's the glasses, and it's it's perfect. <laughs> And it's, again, Daniel Day-Lewis, hilarious, physically. Like, he's so physical in it. It's almost like like that 70s Three's Company pratfall comedy. Yeah. Even though he doesn't have any pratfalls. Yeah. But it's still, it's it's very similar. Like, when he's... (laughs) When he's walking, they're playing tennis and he's walking around the tennis court reading aloud to them because he's so ridiculous and he gets hit by a tennis ball. Oh my God. And just the look on his he's face. He's so indignant. It's so funny. Oh man. Daniel Day-Lewis is just a delight in it. And it's where I go back to saying that I love every character in this book and in this film. Every one of them. They're all wonderful. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but the Merchant Ivory film almost lost its backers at the last moment because they wanted George to be played by John Travolta. (gasps) What? (laughs) Oh, that would be terrible. I mean, Julian Sands is very odd. He's an odd actor. And I think of all the actors in that film, he's the least accomplished or he's not the best one. And he is so odd, but John Travolta? I don't even know. Could he even do an English accent? Exactly, exactly. I mean, the stories they tell when they were trying to find backers in California to like make this movie, they're like, oh, you you need to get rid of all the older characters, and Lucy needs to be an American girl, and like... (laughs) Can you imagine being like Merchant Ivory and just sitting in that room, like just wanting to tear your hair out? Like, oh my God. <laughs> Sounds awful. That's hilarious. <laughs> I actually, I know you love Helena Bonham Carter in this, and this is going to be controversial, but I don't, <gasps> I don't think it's her best acting. No, she was, I don't think it was her best acting. What is it, her second film, Mm -hmm. maybe? It's her second film after Lady Jane. Yeah. Oh, I love Lady Jane. Carrie Elwes. They were so adorable. But I think she's still learning, for sure. But I think she was perfect for Lucy. I I don't know. I I agree. No, I actually, and I don't think it has a lot to do with her, honestly. Because... A lot of actors, a lot of interviews that I watched, they said that James Ivory gave very little direction. And she said that she always felt really anxious and didn't know what to do. And he never told her whether something was right or wrong. And mm. you, there were so many other more accomplished actors on set. I mean, you're working with the stellar cast and she's like, well, I this is my second role and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. I honestly feel it's a directing shortcoming more than it is has anything her. to do with her yeah interesting she has little bursts that i think are adorable like the giggle at the naked boys but also when she stamps her foot she, there's a couple different times where she stamps her foot that's true when she's mm-hmm. trying to get a point across and i think it's just it's endearing to me <laughs> she's so beautiful yeah. and i just think she is her look is so of that time when they pile her hair up on top of her head yeah. And they put her in these little dresses with the tiny little waist yeah. and her little elfish, elfish face. And I just think she she really embodies the time and the character. I agree. And, and this was also Rupert Graves' 
first movie and he always says he hated himself oh, in this and i'm like i think so he's adorable. doing great i don't know what's going on with his hair in this movie but besides <laughs> that like i think he he's just fun to watch because he's just this goof. he is and i think that him and helena have great chemistry together yes that's true as they're they're very believable as a brother and sister actually the entire family is believable as a family mm-hmm. and i like the little glimpses of them as family life like when he knocks her down and then they're just laying in the grass talking (laughs) and and then when he bowls her over in the hallway and starts dancing with her talking about how george is ripping and he's gonna invite him to tennis and she doesn't want him to and he's being an annoying brother yeah yeah and even the mother comes out and she's like what a noise you guys are making like (laughs) knock it off so relatable and cecil is standing in the hallway just watching them all and thinking what have i got myself into marrying into this family (laughs) it's all there and it's just such a good screenplay ruth she's so amazing yeah i love the family dynamic and rupert graves he can still get it. He was oh my the new gosh. Emma. Did you see the new Emma? Uh, yeah, he was smoking in that. As Mr. Tor- <laughs> Churchill. And I'm like, oh, you're still. Mr. Weston, oh, so I think, cute. right? Mr. Oh, no, Weston, was yeah, it that's Tr- what I meant. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Frank Churchill's dad. That's right. That's right. So Mr. Weston. But he's yeah. so, um, yeah, he can get it. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the family dynamics, there's a scene that was added into the movie that I absolutely love. It's one of those brilliant screenplay choices. And that's the dynamic between the Emersons when they're packing up, which is not something we see in the book. But yeah, George kisses his dad's forehead and he's like, I don't want you straining Mm -hmm. your back. And it just uh, hits me right in the heart. They take care of each other so well. I just love the Emersons. They're wonderful. And he's like, it's it's an ugly house. We never liked it. You know, he's trying to make his dad feel better about leaving. He's trying to make his dad feel better that it's not that we're leaving because Lucy's going to marry this other guy and I can't be here. Mm-hmm. It's also because you hate this house. Yeah, and it's, it's far away. And it's yeah. too far from my work. And they're Ugh. so sweet together. I just, I love the Emersons. I also really love the scene of the pension at the end where they repeat all the characters from the opening scene of the movie. Yes. It's the same cast of characters. It's like the tourists are Mm -hmm. the same all over the world. And then you just get that shot of Lucy and George and he grabs her hand and he says, we have a view. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it resolves their relationship so perfectly too. It's just like, ah, they're finally together. It's a perfect ending. And them sitting in the window with the view of, Florence behind them yeah. and then it ends oh. and it's kind of sexy yeah that's true it's a sexy scene yeah. you know he's kissing her all over the place she's trying to read a letter from her brother and he's like mm, no <laughs> <laughs> pay attention to me <laughs> yeah it's great I wanted to ask you what you thought about the postscript because the 2007 one kind of goes off of it a little bit and uses it as a framing device, and I honestly didn't yes. mind that. But in the postscript, George doesn't die, which we see in the movie, but he does cheat on her in World War II. Freddy has to sell Windy Corner. It's basically all these horrible things have happened to all the characters from the book. I had, until you mentioned it, I didn't know there, that there was that he had written a postscript, and I still haven't read it. I'm kind of refusing to read it. I read the one on Wikipedia. I bought a version online that has not arrived yet that should have it in it. And I was I was just sitting with that because of of course it, it ruins the book. But I'm like, I have no idea what it would feel like to live through two world wars yes. and have that weighing on what does that mean for all the stories that I've created and also, what does that mean to my love and relationship to Italy to suddenly have that be a country that's the enemy now and we can't just go visit? And I don't know. It's just it's not something that I feel like I can pass judgment on because I don't know how Forster would have felt about that. I always think about that in terms of Maurice, too, because there's a happy ending at the end. But then you think, well, World War One is right around the corner. Yes. It's well, scary. It stayed happy. Yeah yeah Uh, i I mean i I don't know why he would feel the need to do that though yeah i i would i would rather just leave the idealized version as is but if in his heart of hearts he needed to put that postscript out there then 
he did that for what he needed for his own soul. When I wa- I remember when I watched the 2007 version when it came out, and I think it was on PBS. I feel like it was a masterpiece. I think so, yeah. Masterpiece theater. And the when that framing device was put in and she's going back to Italy and George is dead right from the beginning, I was like, no, <laughs> I don't like this at all. <laughs> Not my HEA. No. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> in the film, she kind of gets together with the Italian driver at the end. Which I thought was interesting and I didn't mind, but that's definitely not something that was in the postscript. That but, sounds kind of where angels fear to tread to me. <laughs> ah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another tie-in to that other book. That's true. I, I need to reread. That. I need to reread all the Forsters because it's been a long time since I've read them all. Like, I remember reading Howard's End when I was, I remember I was visiting my grandparents in Pennsylvania. So I had to have been like... 17 oh that's such a hard book to understand even now <laughs> i know that's what i'm saying like i need to reread I'm, i think i've reread it at least once since then but it's been a long time i need to reread all of them and you've inspired me to do that so maybe that'll be what my 2021 goal is <laughs> yeah how it's end is uh, i really struggle with it uh not because of the writing but because the Wilcoxes, the characters. yeah they're so trumpy and it was just the wrong <laughs> time right now to to read it <laughs> Oh my God, the Wilcoxes are Trumpy. It's like it's very true. It's like some of these characters are always the same, like no matter what century you're yes. in. And actually, timeless. Found, timeless, yeah. Um, I actually found a lot of similarities between Forster and Jane Austen, because mm-hmm. especially in class, Room with a View, class, yeah, and they both have this observational quality. Where, mm-hmm. you know, it's all these little bits and pieces. It's not like one character taking over the show. They really keep the bigger picture in mind and the world they're building. And the quirks and everything. And I thought they they both do that so well. And like with The Room of the View, you're, the focus is like this little village in England. That's true. Just, yeah. like Jane's, just like Jane Austen's are always like a little rural village. And all the interconnecting families. Mm. That's all you get. Mm. Uh, Room of the View, especially because, you know, you've got your Harry Otway and his villas that he's renting. Mm -hmm. And you get Mr. Beeb, the clergyman, which there's always a clergyman in Jane Austen novels. (laughs) And and then the honey churches and the vices who are actually from town, as they would say, because they're the London family. But uh, yeah, I definitely see the parallels. Just one last scene is for me is the scene between Lucy and George when she's fainting. Um, and it's a top yes. down view and he catches her in his arms as yes. she's doing the spinning falling thing. And it's so perfect. How many times did they I have know. to film that? <laughs> it's choreographed. Like I want to so know. Well. What it was, did they just knock it out of the park on the first try? Because it's so, <laughs> with the camera way up high, you know, it must have been a hard setup. Yeah. It couldn't have been an easy setup. But it's so, so sweeping and romantic it's so romantic (laughs) when I watched that film when I was young so when I first saw it when I was like 14 or 15 I really didn't understand what happened between the Italians Uh, me neither when I first watched it that's funny yeah because you don't see the knife you can see the knife if you really look and you realize he was stabbed but it just looked like they were pushing each other around uh, uh, fighting and then all of a sudden all this blood everywhere and I did not understand it when I was a teenager at all. And it was so shocking to me. It was always a, um, it's a very shocking thing. Yeah. I would have fainted too. Yeah. um, And he's so close to her. Like she's so close to it. It's, it seems like she would be, she's across the square and just witnesses it, but no, she's like right next to him. So that when she drops her photographs and blood gets on them. Oh Yeah. It is yeah, scary. it's just very. And then when in in the film, another thing that confused me is that, you know, after they come to take them away, the coroner, you know, with their scary Edwardian masks on their heads, <laughs> the the man who did the stabbing is crying out, and he's so mournful, like he's so upset. It seems like he's upset for the life he took, not for that he's going to probably go to jail now. Mm-hmm. And it's just so still romantic and upsetting. Oh, that scene's amazing. 
And it's also one of those scenes where they're like, oh, well, this is just what the Italians do. You know, they're so yes. passionate. And <laughs> and what you said yep. about um, I would have fainted too, that, that line that George has later on where he says exactly that. Oh, yeah, he says that too. I love that because it's not... It's very obvious that he's trying to overcome this like toxic masculinity thing that's going on in this culture. And he's he's yeah. he doesn't want to show this like fake show of strength. He's like, no, yeah, it was he's upsetting. He's not being a manly man. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I nearly fainted myself. Yeah. Yeah. I love George. I love them all. <laughs> but I think that's it. Thank you so much yeah, for I talking know. about this film with me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I... This is my first time ever uh, being on a podcast. You're a natural. I hope so. I feel like <laughs> I had a lot of searching for words, but hopefully people will enjoy listening to it. I really enjoyed talking to you, Tabby. You are a very fun new friend with so many good thoughts and you add so much to conversations. I oh, really thank you. <laughs> enjoy talking to you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Carrie and I met over an online book club and... Yeah, same to you. You're hilarious, and I love all your strong opinions. And when I found out that this was your favorite film, I was like, I need to have you on. Um, but where can people find you online? Where can they follow you? I am on Instagram and Twitter at Carrie Ann Dunn, K-E-R-R-Y-A-N-N-D-U-N-N. Just my name. I love it. And, and I love all your book <laughs> recommendations and all your music recommendations. Thank you. You're really Thank into you. Yeah, music. if you want to see a bunch of books and a bunch of vinyl records, come <laughs> follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Tabby. I appreciate it. I have a theory that there is something in the Italian landscape which inclines even the most stolid nature to romance. It reminds me somewhat of the country around Shropshire where I once spent a holiday at the home of my friend, Miss Apesbury. And I divine it, Charlotte, you had an adventure there. <laughs> Vain to deny it. <laughs>